episode 66 with filmmaker and writer Melissa Tondo Bungella. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Welcome to part two of today's episode with South African writer and filmmaker, Melissa Tondo Bungela. If you missed part one, double tap on that back arrow and we'll be here waiting for you. In part two of today's episode, Millie shares her experience of growing up in apartheid while not even knowing that it even existed. A citizen of the Transkei, a nation formed within South Africa during its apartheid regime, Millie takes us on an expedition as she explores the complexities of racism and what, if any, solutions exist. She shines a light on her struggles disconnecting from social media in order to hear her calling, and we discuss what it means to even be a nation. Visit us over on Twitter and Instagram and share your favorite moment from today's episode over on Black Imagination. And to view part two of this episode and others, visit us on our new YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. If you're interested in getting lost in what else we have going on, visit us over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com, where this and other content lives. Here we go. Part two of our episode with the marvelous Melissa Tondo Bungela. Oh, I'm sorry, it's me. <laughs> so, you know, circling back to the movie, right? So, you have created a film that was in Sundance is so powerful and so beautiful that speaks about your upbringing and your life back in South Africa. And uh, something I was so interested in um, in this conversation and something that, you know, I told you earlier that, you know, even as a curious, um, you know, hyper, uh, hyper questioning, you know, we have this in common, right? Like wanting to record, uh, wanting to, um, share narratives, record narratives. But even in all of that, I never heard of the trans guy, mm-hmm. the trans guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for listeners, um, who are listening in, we are speaking about a somewhat sort of kind of independent nation that sat within South Africa during apartheid. And in the movie, you have this really beautiful phrase where you talk about living inside of apartheid's wish. You were actually living within this space. So, you know, me being curious and, you know, just out here in these streets and even the team, literally none of us had heard of the trans guy. Could you explain to us what the trans guy is? And you grew up in the space, not even knowing that you were there in yeah. apartheid. 
Fascinating. It was fascinating. This was the question of the film. This was a question I was always asking in these last eight years of making this documentary. What was the chance guy? Because it's not simple. Um, so basically, the apartheid regime, so apartheid starts in 1948, and it started by a group of white South Africans called the Afrikaners, who are a little bit different from British white South Africans or, um, yeah, British white South Africans in that their origin story, um, the origin stories, are they, it, it seeks to uh, fulfill this notion that they are indi- they, they, they force this concept of indigeneity, that they are not Europeans, they might have come from Europe, their ancestors might have come from Europe, but they are Africans, they are part of the soil, but not Africans like me and you. They are Europeans, but they have forced indigeneity in Africa and they have created a new identity, which to some degree is true because uh, Afrikanerness and Afrikanerdom is an offshoot of, of a bunch of European identities. And so as part of kind of legitimizing this idea, they start apartheid in 1948, this idea that we will create our own country we will not be the laughing stock of Europe. We will not be the laughing stock of the United States. We want to be taken seriously. Let's create the system that creates a white homeland in Africa. And that says you cannot dispute that there's a white homeland in Africa. And this is happening in this, the period as African independence is, is happening in the rest of the continent, as there's the great European flight at the rest of the continent. They're like, we're not leaving. Our ancestors have been here for 400 years. And we and and it was they were under the British because the British colonized everybody and there's always been a tussle between the white South Africans. There's the, the Africana side and then there's the ones who still have two passports, <laughs> British passports and, and South African passports because they that political code was never quite broken um, between Europe and, and and South Africa for British citizens and sometimes French citizens etc. Um, so. In this project of, they say, let's create apartheid, um, this notion that we want to actually have a white homeland, but in apartheid literally means every nation, every ethnic group should be apart. People should not be mixing. People were mixing. That's why they created it. People naturally, human beings, I mean, the country was already, you know, some 300 years old at the time when apartheid started, South Africa, the formal country that we know now, even though we had been here for thousands of years. The indigenous Khoi and San people were here for thousands of years before that. And so they create an apartheid with the intention to create separate little nations. So there's going to be the white homeland of which is going to, 87% of it is going to be, 87% of South Africa's land mass is going to belong to the smallest group, which are the white people. And the Zulu people are one nation. The Tosa people are one nation. The Tswana people are one nation. Bedi, um, Tonga, etc. And the whole point was that we're going to have, we're going to balkanize the country and each little group is going to have their own separate country. And so they started this process in the 1960s, but of course it was rubbished by everybody because everyone could see right through it. Um, and the point was that they want to treat black people in their South Africa very badly so that black people will want to run away and go to their nations, their homelands. 
as if with people that have always just stayed in one place and never roamed around. And so the trans guy comes out of this idea of apartheid. It's created by the, the white government, by the apartheid government. It's conceptualized by them. Um, and everyone's rubbishing it. Nelson Mandela rubbishes it. Steve Biko, all these well-known activists are like, this is a terrible idea. We see what you're doing. And one man who happens to be Nelson Mandela's relative, I think it's Nelson Mandela's nephew, a man named K.D. Matanzima from the 1960s says, me and my people, I'm tired of living in the shitty conditions under apartheid. I'm going to buy into this idea of actually, fine, give us our own land. And Americans, the, the, the apartheid government had also, um, I think, studied the reservation system in America. This idea of like, oh, let's just give them their own land so that they can run their own affairs and they don't have to bother us with what they need. And let's give them the semblance of leaders and independence. And so Uma Tanzima says, actually, I'm going to take this ticket because we're tired of being treated badly by you guys. And actually, let's buy into this notion of separatism. Um, and so in, in 1976, Trans Guy becomes so-called independent um, and it separates from the rest of South Africa, installs these leaders, and these leaders are out to build a closer nationalist nation that where white people don't have all the rights, where it's closer people that have the rights and the land and jobs. And so, um, of course, the whole world is fighting about this. They're saying it doesn't exist. The only country that recognizes the trans guy is Israel. And Israel and the South African government are the only countries in the whole world. Um, it's not recognized by the UN, but it's recognized by these two countries because they're working with the trans guy. So the, the apartheid government funds and pumps money into this idea of the trans guy, and essentially, all the, the, the accoutrements of a state, you know, they print all kinds of things. There's flags, there's independence days. So the South Africans come down to have a Transkei Independence Day. And um, the people of the Transkei are also sold with this idea that, look, aren't you tired of living under these whites who abuse you? And the people are like, of course. And the, the people of the, the leaders, they are like, yes, well, maybe we should have our own country. And people like my parents buy into it. And they say, yeah, actually, we don't want to live in some shitty conditions. Let's, let's buy into this new country. And if you were educated, of which many Transkians were, if you were middle class, of which many Transkians became middle class because there was a lot of the white people left who were doing the civil jobs, police, clerks, secretaries, nurses, they left the country and moved to South Africa. Some of them remained. They were like, we're not leaving. And they were allowed to stay. But the rules were... It's going to be a, you're not going to have, you're not going to be treated special. You're not going to be special here. And so I did grow up with white people, but I didn't know they were white. My sister says, because I used to think we didn't. And my sister was like, they live next door to us, which wasn't happening in South Africa during apartheid. But white people didn't have this thing of being superior or better. I had no conception of that. And so I wasn't taught about race. And my mother, when I asked her, you know, what what did you guys think of South Africa? Obviously, you knew this stuff was happening. They were like, we used to read about this in the papers. And so, wow, things are so bad in South Africa. Meanwhile, yesterday, you were South Africa. But they just created this new country. And so, it was, a, it was a shock to discover that I've grown up in this place. Because when it ended, as apartheid ended, it disappeared. The flags disappeared. The official dim disappeared. The passports. Everything that had 
the, the, the makings of a state disappeared. But I remembered, wow, wait a minute, we grew up watching cartoons in Tosa. We grew up watching TV shows in Tosa. English was something that was optional. <laughs> you went to study it at school, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to study English because it's better. I, I learned how to read on books that my father wrote in Tosa. And so the tension is that I did have this sort of idea of childhood. There were many other people in the Tosca who didn't, who were poor because classism was a very classist place. But in terms of this idea that there's something wrong with me and I'm black and I'm in pain and I've got a tragedy and a trauma, that idea is just, I discovered that when I was nine years old in a white school. But I didn't know that I'm black. I didn't know that I, I mean that we have traumas because I'm growing up in this very colorful world. And what the trans guy government had done was also take this narrative of African independence and also communicate themselves. Like we are also a new independent nation, you know. Even though the world was like you're not, this is a sham that's been created by these 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 like apartheid people. And you see in the film, the leader of the trans guy says, our independence is an essential element of South Africa's policy of apartheid. And so in the film, I'm like, opening the question, what was apartheid? Did we really understand what it was? The images that we grew up watching and that you guys were seeing in the United States and everybody else in the world, does it match the complexity of what it actually was on the ground? I feel mm. like... In the anti-apartheid struggle, those narratives were very important to show the worst versions of it, to show how brutal it was, to show the teeth of apartheid. Really, it was necessary. That's how we got our freedom. However, now that I'm 37 years old, right, and it's been almost 30 years that we've had our so-called democracy, and all the vestiges of apartheid and colonialism and slavery are here. They have not gone anywhere. The traumas, the crises... The, the people, our people are so broken <laughs> on such fundamental levels and we don't even know how to talk about it. We don't know where to start. And so I was like, I want to go back to ask what was apartheid? Do we really understand what it was? If such a place as the trans guy can exist, because one year after the trans guy got its independence, another state popped up called Moputazwana in 1977. And the leader there was like, look what Matanzima is doing. Those people are lagged off and they're not struggling like we are. Let's also build one. And the party regime was like, great, our plan is coming true. And they went, they rushed off to Bupatitswana, did the same thing, made flags, made stamps, made uh, songs and pumped money into this idea. And then after that, another one in, in 1979, Venda was like, us too, in another part of the country. And then in 81, another one, this guy. So these little states, they were called the TBVC states. Transkai, Putazwana, Venda, and Siskai started forming where you now had ethnic groups and these leaders who were Tosa nationalists and Zulu nationalists and Venda nationalists who didn't really care because the whole plan of, of their regime was to divide and conquer the black people and, and, and make sure that the Zulus don't trust the Tosas, make sure that the Tosas don't trust the Zoanas or the Sutus. Because if we come together, which is what was happening in, in the ANC, for instance, and the PAC, where black people are like, doesn't matter, we're all black, we're all getting treated the same. But in these lagged zones, which a lot of propaganda was being fed to the people there, life seemed okay. 
life seemed fine. So, but it wasn't, of course, because the, the complexity is that it was, yes, I may have had some kind of nice Pan-African childhood growing up with Ghanaians mm-hmm. and Ugandans and like wearing dashikis at birthday parties and never knowing trauma, being traumatized by whiteness and white supremacy every day. However, this was the creation of the regime because the whole idea was about land, actually. It's about they want to take the, big, the biggest land, develop it for themselves and create a white homeland. So first they create black, black homelands. They're never going to say we want to create our white homeland. They called our areas, oh, here's your Zulu homeland. Here's your Kosa homeland. But the bigger picture was it is creating a white homeland. That was actually the, the, the point of apartheid, I think. To naturalize so, oh, this idea sorry, sorry. that white people belong here. Sorry. sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. So, like, you know, in this kind of discovery, right, discovery of what you were growing up in, um, you know, even now, right? Even as recent as 2018, like what are the difficult questions we should be asking about power, fear, intimacy, (sighs) and love as it relates to race? And to maybe center it, you know, in your film, you say, I have to be very careful about how I remember my memories. I have to ask dangerous questions. Yes. Um, what are those dangerous questions? Dangerous questions were at the time. Can I claim to be black in South Africa if I grew up in a place like the Transdad? Can I claim the, the, the struggle of black South Africans? Do I belong in that group if actually I belong to this other group? Why do we not talk about this other group? Why do I feel ashamed that I belong to this other group of black people who didn't suffer as much um, or, who, or who were in this other weird place? And the most dangerous, most difficult question was, I do, not a question, but a realization was, what if it's possible for white people not to have known that apartheid was wrong because I grew up in a place not knowing I'm inside of it, not reading them. I don't realize the propaganda. Like, is there a universe in which we can say maybe some people didn't know because here I was not knowing that I'm in apartheid, not knowing that I'm black, not knowing that anything is wrong. Mm -hmm. So if I can extend that, question to myself, the scary thing was, can I extend this question to white people in South Africa? Mm -hmm. And that was very scary to enter into because I had to go into that space. I had to say, if, if they use propaganda towards us in the trans guy, of course they must have used propaganda here too. Not to absolve anybody, not to say, oh, they didn't know and they were all innocent and the propaganda was just brainwashing them. However, what was the power of propaganda and how did it create our reality? Why is it that a minority group can can control us for 340 years? How? What do you have to do to people in order to let that happen? What do we have to believe about ourselves? And so I had to get out of the unnuanced 
so-called radical terms of understanding what blackness is, of understanding what apartheid was, of understanding what oppression is and what power looks like and how power functions. I had to get into understanding or, or exploring who are we when we are not invulnerable, when we're not protesting in the streets being strong with our fists raised, with our beautiful speeches and our rousing leaders. Who are we on the, on the normal day? And why is it that we capitulate so much in front of white people? How does that happen? At which point? What age does it start? Which, which age do I start to believe that I'm inferior? Genuinely, my psycho, my brain is developed around this idea that whenever a white person walks into a room, they can have authority over me and I buy into that. How does that happen? How does the white person at three years old know exactly who to look at when somebody says, oh, there goes the N-word? There goes the K-word in South Africa. How come the white child at three years old knows, oh, they're talking about the, this person who looks like this, not me? How? So psychologically speaking, how does racism exist? How does it start? What is the... <sighs> yeah, like... Not the big stuff, not the loud stuff, not the stuff that is, we all recognize. I was more interested in the psychic wound and how it passes itself on silently between us, how it constantly, constantly exists in this country where a black person and a white person, this, a smile between them in a park, a smile between a stranger who's black, one who's white, is loaded. And we weren't talking about this in our country. We were talking about people who went into jail and people who fought. And I'm like, many of us didn't fight, guys. Many people didn't fight. Many people, not, not to scorn anyone because they were scared because there were consequences when you were trying to fight, right? You would die. You would be disappeared. So fear, this idea, we're always, a lot of the times, that what I was seeing reflected back to me was like, a blackness that was always very confident. We're not scared. We can just tell you. And I was like, yes, I know this. And I'm trying to co make contact with that feeling. But what about the fact that I am scared of white people? I am. And I'm not scared of the police. I'm not because the police are gone. The white police are gone in our country in Joburg. You see black policemen. I'm not scared of the police. I'm not scared of the soldiers. I'm not scared of a monster, a big guy who's like scary and like, a wild racist. I'm scared of the ones who are sitting next to me at the restaurant. I'm scared of the ones in my classroom. I'm scared of the ones who are my neighbors. Because inside those intimacies, there's like a close range harm that happens there. Where they say, one little girl says something to you that you will never forget for the rest of your life. About your blackness, about your ability, about your competence, about your intelligence, about your home, about your food, whatever, all this shit. Like, and that thing stays with you and it has the capacity to cripple your humanity. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in that thing, in like, how does this happen? How do our mothers work in these kitchens with people who, call, who treat them all kinds of ways? How? Where does that thing live in the mind? Is it always there? Do they compartmentalize and go, okay, I'm going to work now. And, you know, I'm interested in... Yeah, how we carry this stuff. And then what mm. does power and fear and intimacy, what's happening in that space? And, and then <laughs> what is love in that space? Is it possible? What is love for myself? 
can I identify what love is for myself when there's a huge part of me that has hated the way I've looked because I've grown up in a world that has convinced me that I'm ugly because I'm black, not I'm ugly because of my facial features, but because of the skin, because of my physical attributes of being an African. There's a part of me that believes that, that I mustn't pretend that, I, that uh, I'm just, we didn't just arrive at like, this point now where we're like natural hair and ruby woo and nice big buns, like we're on a journey, but I want to talk to the thing that the part of us that, that, that did believe those things and not to shame it and not to say it was wrong or whatever, because it was wrong, but like we had no choice. And I think in the last 15 years, we've done such good work in like silencing like in de dethroning that that truth, because it was a truth for our parents and our grandparents. We've done a good job through the internet together all over the world of like really being like this is bullshit. Our lips are fine, etc. However, it doesn't mean just because you intellectually believe that mm. that the rest of you believes that. You know, I mean, to do this film, so you know. There's, in many ways, you have just kind of channeled, <laughs> which is incredible. Um, but, you know, our relationship, right, is one that was also predestined, right? I met you in 2016 um, in Joburg, and some somehow, somewhere, I knew you were my wife in some regard, whether or not you wanted to own that or not. <laughs> I am your person. Oh, thank you, darling. I am. I am. Oh, I, oh, oh, I do. <laughs> she says I do. Um, but there were moments where you disappeared, you know? Because yeah. when I met you, like, you are so full of life and joy and beauty and wisdom and intelligence and just chic, you know? Like, you just have it. Like, you you get a... Like, it's kind of annoying. Thank you. Actually. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's because of my nerves. Um, <laughs> but then you, you kind of disappeared. Oh, hey. Uh, but you kind of then disappeared for yeah. a second. You kind of stepped away uh, from social media. Um, I think from a kind of a public space, right? You were quite public. You were writing articles and journals. You were, you know, working in fashion. You spoke a lot about, you know, traveling back and forth to the United States. But like, you know, my access and the world's access to you had to be removed. Mm. And I'm very interested to know why and what that space allowed for. And I could prompt it um, because this is something that I see happen many times, right? Particularly with, with Black women and Black women in the public. Um, you know, Lauren Hill mm -hmm. stepped away. Um, you know, Michaela Cole, the writer, stepped away. And she even has this quote, and this can maybe help center us. And, and, out, and out of this disappearance, right, comes this movie. But what she says is, she says, write the tale that scares you, that makes you feel uncertain, that is uncomfortable. I dare you. 
in a world that entices us to browse through the lives of others to help us better determine how we feel about ourselves and to, in turn, feel the need to be constantly visible for these visibility, for visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success. Do not mm-hmm. be afraid to disappear from it, from us for a while and see what comes to you in the silence. So why did you step away and what came to you in the silence? I mean, Michaela says it all, I think. Um, I know I know that I couldn't do both. Couldn't be on social media, saying things in public, um, writing, public-facing, being public-facing, and listen. Because it wasn't mm. just about having the silence, it's about listening to what is inside the silence. And that, for me, me- meant sacrificing and letting go of a lot. You know, my public-facing identity was one thing, but I sacrificed a lot of friendships, a lot of time with my family, a lot of uh, ways in which I was relating with the world. Um, because I felt there was a noise in my mind it was like a thing that couldn't stop going like this. It was like a bell. Imagine a very loud cowbell that's ringing in your head and you're trying to get to a room where you're just like, I can't hear cars, I can't hear trucks, I can't hear birds, I can't hear all these other things because I'm trying to listen for what exactly is this ringing sound in my head which won't stop no matter what I do. And it was almost as if it wasn't a choice. I wasn't like, okay, guys, uh, it wasn't a choice. It was almost like a, a calling. You know, when a calling calls you, you you don't you can't you don't have a choice but to respond. And so, the way that I've tried to describe it to, to my friends was that it felt like there was this loud ringing bell in my head, and it was only going to stop when I've completed this thing that I'm here to say. And people would notice it, and they'd say, "Yay, which is um. I mean, I don't know the exact meaning of that, but the meaning that I've heard people say is it's when you have a calling and it's when you have got this bone that you will not let go of until you extract the particular flavor and taste that you need for you to live. And I knew that it wasn't about whatever it is that I'm going to say. It's not for me. It's for the world. It's working with me. It's an entity that's working with me that needs me to retreat that needs me to be quiet, that needs me to not turn on social media because it's nice there, it's so nice and so distracting. And it's gonna, if I'm going to see you doing cool things and fabulous things and I'm going to see somebody else doing cool, fabulous things, it's going to make me doubt. There's already mm. a lot of doubt in, in, in the path of the light. There's already a lot of doubt and a lot of self and of ego death that has to happen. And so I was busy, man. Damn, I was busy. Oh my God, I was underground. I really did go underground. I went into myself so deeply with such force. And I know I wasn't the only one that was pushing. I, I worked with incredible people, two incredible people in particular, my editor, Hank Lee, and my producer, Marion Isaacs. Like, we really went into the underground of ourselves as people to listen to the film, to what it wanted. Because we knew quite early on that, oh, it's not just a nice story that's journalistic and you know, only intellectual. We knew that, oh, there's, there's, a, there's something here that has chosen, called us, it's called us, and we are in service 
to it and it needs our collaboration. I'm not a vessel. It's not some powerful thing on its own. Its entity and my body are 50-50 there. We have to work together. So we are collaborating and, and it was really a process of listening and going deeper and deeper. And on a superficial level, I would say like it was working out, going backwards from like having really bad ideas to like distilling them to good ideas. And I had to accept, I had to learn at each stage. It took me almost nine years to make this film. And I, today, as I was packing my clothes today, I'm reading my journals from 2014 and I'm like, wow, how lovely it is to graduate from your lesser good ideas. But how wonderful it is that you had them, you know? Because, and I knew I was never satisfied and because I knew, but it's not saying, it's not the voice of the film, it's not the face of the film, it's not the spirit of the film. And when, as, as soon as we knew that we we're working with another spirit, that's how we approached, that's, that was our process. And so that really required, it was a state of prayer a lot of the times and meditation and poetry and we, mm. and uncertainty. We just had to lead, to dive deep into uncertainty, which is what life is, isn't it? And faith is, isn't it? It's the point that there's no certainty. And so how do you lean into that thing? And I feel like anything outside of that, even some of my friendships, even some of my work relationships, even normal life felt like it was oppositional to what I was trying to do. And so I did retreat really and truly. I, 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 nobody, I didn't fight with anyone. I just, my friends, I said to them, I'm sorry, guys, you will see me every now and then. And I made my group much smaller. And I would only see certain people at certain times. And at times I would try out my ideas. And sometimes I would see that this thing that I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm not saying it correctly, but it's not landing with my friends. And then they would make me doubt. Not they, but the, the fact that it's not landing, they would make me doubt. I'm like, oh, am I saying the right thing? And I was like, I can't be in a space of doubt right now. So I said to my friends, please excuse me. Because I have to go like this. I've got to put my ear right to the ground so that I can understand the harmony of this ringing in my head. And that's what art is, right? That's what a commitment to, that's what art is in the world to us. This is the, the gift that it gives us. It, it helps us to access this world, these entities, to talk to these conscious entities that are always trying to help us and tell us stuff, um, but we must come correct. And so this was a process of me trying to figure out what does it mean to come correct. And don't think that I wasn't trying to be on Instagram. Oh, please, I tried. Don't think I didn't try to go out and be on, on Twitter, whatever. I was still trying, and it was nice. I couldn't even watch all the shows that everybody was talking about. The last show I watched was Game of Thrones season two. After that, I have no idea what's happened because even when I was watching other films and other series, because a series, I commit, I come in, I dream about the characters, they become part of me. And I knew even that was toxic to the process. Mm. I couldn't meet all these beautiful characters from what shows did I miss, for instance? that everybody was talking about. Um, Watchmen, for instance. I wanted to watch, everyone was like, oh my God, the show is so good. Everyone, you know, I wanted to watch these shows and engage, but I knew I can't afford it because it's going to infiltrate and it's going to make me 
doubt myself because I'm, I'm insecure, right? I'm an, I'm an insecure writer and an artist. And I'm like trying to be like, does this thing make sense from me? I'm insecure on many levels. And so I was like, how do I eliminate anything that all the things that make me doubt myself? And so if I saw a brilliant show somewhere else, I'd be like, God damn it. I can't forget about that writer. <laughs> damn. And then, then I would, you know, the only thing I couldn't even read new books. Because again, mm. same, same problem. I'm going to, I'm going to get sucked. I could only read nonfiction. That was about what I'm doing. I was doing, re- doing research, right? But I couldn't read, I couldn't dive into other stories because if they were threatening and they were too dangerous to my process because some, if, if they were good, then I'm going to start to want to sound like that writer, you know, but I had to be, figure out what does it mean to sound like me. And so it was all or nothing. And so. At some point, I was like, yeah, I'll give up the books. I'll give up the TV shows. I'll give up Instagram. I'll give up social media. I'll give up knowing what's going on in Dario's life, even though I absolutely adore him. But I know that the second I see his eyes again, we, our love has never stopped, even though I didn't talk to you for four years. And that's exactly what happened, right? I called you after four years, and we picked up right where we left off. And it's been like that. My true friends, this is how it's been. No one pressured me. No one was like, Mimi, who have you? No, no one. And somehow... People understood and they respected and I really am very grateful to even my family. They never asked too many questions. They just knew, but hey, this child, just let her do what she's doing. You know? And I think we owe ourselves that. A lot of us owe ourselves that thing to dive into, to commit. And it's, it's hard. It is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. It's the most challenging thing and it's scary and oh my God, it's, I'm in therapy twice a week because of this. And I'm so glad to have that support because you can't do it when you're really facing. A lot of our process is about facing, facing oneself, facing history, facing archive, facing the shit that has happened that you can't just gloss over. Like I was like, I really want to understand this. And so that's also where the curiosity had to come in because sometimes it was too painful to engage the stuff. And so I had to drop my own, I had to try as much as possible to be objective, which is almost impossible. But I had to be like, okay, if I'm to really understand how apartheid happened, I can't enter with my own feelings of like, these people were 1000% evil. I'm never going to understand it. I'm just going to lead with that. So how do I take away my own feelings and try to understand what happened so that it doesn't, so then I can understand it so that it doesn't happen again. Um, mm. And yeah, and it was like a philosophical, historical, psychological, spiritual intersection, all four at, at all times, psychological, historical, philosophical, spiritual. And you may not have the answer to this, and I'm not really looking for an answer as much as uh, a vessel to hold this this question in. In that work and in releasing, um, or at least decoupling yourself from the identities that you walked into this work with, Do you feel that apartheid 
was as damaging as the world narrative suggests. And to maybe narrow in the reason why that the reason why I'm being very deliberate with my word choice um is because your film and even your life history and story shows ways in which it allowed for a sense of personhood and a belonging to take place out of sheer ignorance of the larger structure at work. Um, and in the U.S., uh, you know, we had segregation as well. And of course, you know, the Black areas were completely underfunded and subpar and all of these things. But we we at times have a conversation in, around what does it mean? What did it mean to have our own schools, to show up in class and have a teacher that actually cared whether or not you got the lesson or not? Um, and to fight to reinsert ourselves into an intimate space with people who mean us harm. Oh my God, this question. I don't think apartheid gave me and gave the people who had a different experience of it in the homelands those lives. I think we gave ourselves those lives. Our parents gave ourselves those lives. Um, and even in those places of, in, 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 in segregated America, people give themselves the, the quality lives that they, in those spaces. Um, it's, it's not like, I don't want to walk into this dangerous zone of being like, oh yeah, maybe apartheid was justifiable in this particular way. I think that it is more evil and more complex than we understand. Mm. I think that the understanding is actually maybe still at 40%. We're not fully there. We understand it in material terms. We understand it in masculinist, violent terms. So we understand it in practical, tangible terms. But psychologically, uh, that is the most damaging thing to cripple so many millions of people, indigenous people all over the world. Spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, in all these other ways that you can't see and touch to, to break them, not just their arms, but the, their spirits is far more damaging. And I feel like even in a free South Africa where I live in a beautiful apartment and I drive a mini Cooper and I speak this English and I'm traveling and getting on planes, what is the pain inside of me? It's not material. It's historical. It's ancestral. It's, 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 it's intangible. It's the stuff that we can't see. And I think a lot of the times we are attracted to this notion of only needing things to express themselves materially to see how bad it is. We mm. know that it's bad, but I feel like it is far more complex than we understand it. The fact that this was intentionally planned, they didn't have good intentions and love 
when they were putting black people and lagering them into those places. This was the most unarable land. They chose the best land for themselves. And they were like, oh, it had no minerals. It had no wealth. So it wasn't like these plans were set up intentionally because there was a care. It came out of greed. It came out of this fundamental notion that is anti-human, this idea of separating people. Fascism says we must be separated. We must create straight, hard, rock-solid lines and separate from each other, separate families, separate. And that's why our pain as Africans and black people all over the world is that they separated our families. We haven't even begun to talk that much about what is the intergenerational damage of that? The fact that a lot of us have no idea what it's like to have the support of two parents and our larger, not just two parents, because this nuclear parent notion is bullshit. Communities that were thriving, where people were concerned with just how to be a human being. And, and, and seeing in a far wider way. And so like, I think that when we understand and think of apartheid only in the vile senses of the people getting shot down the street and the, the, the policemen wielding guns, this is what makes white people buy into this idea that it's over. We're not doing that anymore. You guys aren't being shot at by, you know, water cannons and stuff because we have only attached apartheid to this the most grotesque form of the physical expression of it, the material expression of it. No, before something is material, it starts off as an idea. It starts off as a belief. And the belief is the thing that makes one build their whole life around it. The belief is the thing that ends up being a pointed gun at you if you are a mm. black person by a policeman. And so that territory of thinking and ideology that is far more sinister and evil. And I feel like this is where our attention should really be. This is where the healing can only happen if we go there. Because, yes, we're, we, don't, we don't have to wear plasters because we're not getting physically grazed as much as we were 100 years ago. But shit is still broken. People are in so much pain. And to buy into this idea of the material as security or the material as the most important thing is to buy into the reasons that made the Europeans go out into the whole planet and do this. And to, and, and to kill all the other forms of life that we know are true, you know? To attach ourselves only to this idea of our physical selves and only the things we can see and touch and prove. This is the problem. Life is far wider than that. It's far more complex. It's far more mysterious. There's, it's far more bigger. And like, I don't even think we've begun to, we're not even at 50% of understanding what, how evil apartheid was. Mm -hmm. But inside of that evil, the people of the trans guy, Matanzima, for instance, is always painted as like a puppet and a sellout. And yes, one could actually argue that from the outside. But when you listen to his speeches, of which I've listened to every single one of them, because I've been researching this for years, they, it wasn't a sense of, oh, we're capitulating because the white people told us. They're like, no, we are self-determining people. We want to get on with the program of living. And if it mm. means we've got to take this shitty ticket, we'll take it. But inside of that, fortunately and unfortunately, the program of living continued. <laughs> there was living that happened. As, as, as you know, 
and as as you are relating to the, the experience of what happens, because he says in the film, when we are when we are put together, they don't treat us with respect. But once we are separated, they will see that we are men from another state. And of course, you know whether this sentiment was true or not, or real or not to him, it did create something that wasn't the, the typical experience of apartheid. And I don't want to play the game of saying either or of choosing, you know, whether it was good or bad. It's complex because history and life is complex. And so the thing about the film is that I'm trying to articulate this position of being coming from this place that I don't necessarily agree with ideologically, but that's given me so much. It's given me my life. It's given me my language. It's given me my religion. It's, 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 I belong somewhere, you know? I feel like this idea of belonging is like I'm set in that regard. And so I can't discard it. And it's about living in the grayness of the whole thing, right? And unpacking apartheid not from this perspective of like arriving at the door of it and saying it's evil and that's it. Or arriving at the door of the trans guy and saying this was good and that's it. It's about... That that's why it was so successful because it really it was created by psychologists, by the way. The people who conceived of apartheid was a was a group of psychologists in Stellenbosch, one of whom became the prime minister. And so it it uses the quality of li- qualities of life and the human complexity and the complexity of, uh, of and the abstractness of the mind and perverts that to for the the causes of fascism. And, and ultimately, it's, it's fundamentally and diametrically opposed to Ubuntu, Isintu, to the indigenous knowledge systems here that most indigenous people understand, which is that we need each other. There is no such thing as an individual. I don't, I cannot live by myself. I don't come, I don't bring myself into the world. I don't bury myself. I don't live alone. I need other people as a human child. Or I die, right? We have to, we need each other. We need, we are part of a complex system and we fathom as a human being. I'm, I'm, I'm fathoming myself through you right now. I can't look in a mirror and, and, and for the rest of, if I were to sit and look at a mirror for the rest of my life, I would never know myself. I would never know myself. I would just see how I look, but I know myself by having a conversation with you. I know myself, another part of myself by having a conversation with my mom, another part by having a conversation with my dog or my therapist. And this is why I was saying at the beginning that my spirit and all of our spirits are infinite because we're not having the same conversation with these different people. One part of me comes out when I'm talking to my mom, another part when I'm talking to my uncle, another part when I'm talking to my partner. And this is the, 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 at the heart of Ubuntu. It's not a man is a man because of another man or whatever. It's, it's, it means we fathom life and existence by interpersonal conversations. Whereas the other thing, fascism and apartheid, which is what it is, says I am an individual and, I'm, and, I, and we must separate as much as we can. That's why intimacy is then the antidote to fascism.
all fascisms, right? As it relates to queerness, as it relates to religion, as it relates to all the ways in which we are split. And so the, the way to undo that is to insist on intimacy. I don't know if I've gone off too much, but fascism is the antidote. Is that intimacy is the is the antidote to fascism? And so that's why in our fight mm. against apartheid, we have to figure out how do we not do the work of apartheid for it. So when we say, I understand there are moments where we need to preserve ourselves and we need to separate. But we need to say as black people, this is ours. This is our. Let's be alone now. But, or as women, cis women, let's be alone. Trans women, let's be alone. Because only in our own spaces can we understand how we sound and how our pain is and how our joy is. Our joy is. However, we cannot stay in that position. We mm-hmm. have to, otherwise that's, that's doing apartheid's work for it. It's like, oh, you want to be alone? Great. Because it, it, you, are, you are making this idea of ours live, right? And because it's not going to be, racism is not going to be resolved by black people sitting alone together. Nor is it going to be resolved by white people sitting alone together. There are times when everybody has to be in their own group, but we have to figure out what is this very difficult center where we do have to meet. In that center, what are we saying to each other? How are we speaking? How are we breaking down the trauma? How are we breaking down the aggressions? How are we breaking down all this other stuff? And then this other desire to be together because it's there. And there's other desire for love to exist. And we are owed so much love, Dario. We are owed so much love. Mina, I don't want to say, why people must leave me alone anymore? There was many years where I was like, leave me alone. Now I'm like, actually, at the very, 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 very bottom of this feeling of leave me alone is a cry that says, why have you not loved me back? You're supposed to love me back because I've loved you. My mother has loved you. I've, I've loved you. We've loved you for 500 years. Why do you not love me back? Mm. And, and that why doesn't come from a place of I need it because no, it's a, it's a human right to be loved. A child enters into the world and the first thing they expect is love because they deserve it. And so it's been, if it's been systemically taken away from us, our stance to say, leave us alone and we just want to do our own thing. I understand it. That's a, that's a response of like, you've hurt me too much and I don't want to be around you. But it doesn't take away the need for that love because we're humans. That's why we get shocked when people treat us badly and follow us in the restaurant or in the, in the pharmacy. That's why we get shocked because that thing is a thing that's saying, you're supposed, you're supposed to love me, actually. Why aren't you loving me? But because that language or that thing is like, it seems like it's a soft language. It's not soft. It's the most profound. (laughs) I'm very interested in it. I'm not good at it yet, but I'm very much drawn to this idea that I'm, I'm done now being like, leave me alone. I'm now I'm like, Oh, because we are also shamed when we want to go closer to them. Right. We're always shamed when you want to go closer to the other that has harmed you. But that thing that lives inside you that does want to go closer, it's not something, I don't, I don't want to be ashamed of it anymore. It's a natural thing because I'm here to love animals, plants, people, life. And that requires intimacy. 
and we are scared of it. I'm in therapy because I'm scared of it. <laughs> in my own family, in my own life, in my, I don't have a partner because I'm just like, oh my God, as soon as somebody come close, it's too scary. They're going to leave me. They're going to hurt me. But I'm unlearning that. And of course, how our stances against whatever the other is in our life, it mirrors, it's mirrored there by our relationships intimately. Whatever's happening in the politics outside, however we, our stance is to other people outside, it's going to be mirrored there in your relationship. You can't have violence and horror and hatred outside and think inside you're going to have nice love. No, it doesn't work like that. You can get married in the Enchegar, you can get married in the Baptist Church or the Church of Lutheran, what, what. But is there love in that thing if, if you're living in a violent society? No. And so, yeah. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> well, my dear, um... <laughs> Oh my God, it's been two hours. I'm so sorry. No, I I think that is an incredibly powerful place to wrap this <laughs> this this iteration of our ongoing conversation. Um, I thought about so much as you were speaking. You know about you know. The you know, and here we speak a lot about design, you know, as a technology to bring thought into space and time. And so, you know, realizing that the materiality of a gun in one's hand started long before a gun arrived in the hand, right? Um, that the world's spaces, social constructs, um, you know, even media, culture, the spectacle, right? The materiality of it uh, is just the residue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the residue of a much, much more powerful um, energy force. Um, you know, this idea of apartheid and this kind of puppet state in a way of the trans sky um, makes me think of the multiple levels of apartheid that exist, right? Both globally, mm-hmm. all the way down to, the, to, to oneself, right? There is a global apartheid, right? There are states that exist that are not really states they just have the appearance of statehood Mm -hmm. as the trans guy did Um, that the notion of individuality is a microcosmic apartheid because you are saying that I also separate myself Right in this notion of of my own material acquisition and selfhood, I am actually separating myself. I am creating my yeah. own state. 
my own apartheid state against the world, right? Or against the other. Um, Not in relation to, even though we can't help but be in relation to, right? Like the truth truth will always be the truth. But mentally, right? And and so much of what drives the self, the individual, individualism is material acquisition. I remember I I I, I have a diamond on my ear and it's a lab grown diamond. And oh, I didn't yeah. know that it made such. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it's amazing. It's um a company called Vray, which is French for real. V-R-A-I, anywho. Um, But what I loved about it was like, oh my God, I don't have to release the aesthetic, right? Like, I love this aesthetic. I love the beauty. But nobody had to die for me to enjoy it. And it made me think about how sinister, how sinister the desire for this material manifestation of palace, of park, uh, you know, of jewels, yeah. of cars, of whatever. Like what we're, wi- like how many humans we're willing to throw under the bus in order to enjoy a shiny object. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and we all, right, uh, you know, um, what does they what do they say at the end of Romeo and Juliet? All are punished. Mm. Right, and we're that all punishment here. is loneliness. Yeah. The loneliness we're feeling as a result. Yeah. So anyway, Millie, this has been incredible. Um Ancestor, whoever you were in the room, (laughs) thank you for showing up. You know, these conversations, we always have a slight roadmap. And then you kind of also just have to let, you know, what we would say in the Baptist tradition, the Lord have his way. Yeah, the Lord Lord certainly does have his way. I get that. It's true. It's true. Um, and so Millie, I just want to, you know, before I ask, um, my last question, I just want to take this moment to acknowledge you, um, to acknowledge, uh, the work that you have put into the world to, to carry those stories forward and to trouble the water, you know, to trouble the water, to trouble the many waters, um, that we've traversed over and that we reside in, um, and even those that we offer, um, and sacrifice. And so I want to thank you. I know that that work, I mean, baby, I'm, I'm, my Instagram account was, (laughs) was down for three weeks and I, I made it, but I was, it was tough. So I know (laughs) that that work of four years is, is, is tough, (laughs) but, but to know what it means to just kind of shut it down and shut it off so that you can actually hear is such a gift. And thank you for sharing that with us because I, I, I really believe that we don't, we're so used to it. It's so, it's, it's in the soup of life um, mm. that we don't realize how distracted we are, how, um, how cut off we are from what is trying to come through us. And we hear it and we snuff it out, right? We silence it. We put a pillow over it with 
binge watching or IG or a dating app or what we think is love. Um, And that great work is the work of listening to what's already there. And so I just want to thank you for doing that deep listening, like listening beyond space and time um, to even make this conversation possible. So, uh, Millie, thank you. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you for seeing me. And thank you for always seeing me. I see you too. And so Millie, what is the world you imagine for the future? I'm so excited about the future. Oh my God. It's literally, I sometimes overthink about it, like not overthink, but I'm just always there. Sometimes I'm like, me come back <laughs> because, um, I remember one day having an argument with my then boyfriend, um, who said that all the great leaders are dead. Never ever will this world ever see another Gandhi or another Mandela, um, and I became so angry because I said to him, maybe, maybe all the great male leaders of the world are dead. But there's no way that death can be declared without us, without me having a shot at it. Greatness. <laughs> you know, us who've been in the cupboards, locked up, not allowed to come out and be ourselves. And we are coming out hard and fast and it's glorious. And so... Despite and in spite of every ways in which we have been snuffed out and they have tried to snuff us out, this idea that we cannot participate in a future because the one that we know now, the life that we know, life as we know it is dying. Yes, it must die. We are in deep mourning because all the ways that used to make sense about the world, we are in free fall from that. It is dying. And I don't want to go with the wave. I feel the pain. We all feel the pain of the loss. We are, we know certainty is a being lost. We, there's so much that we don't know. All the forms of security are, you know, going out the window and this is painful and it must be mourned and it sucks on one hand. However, other new things are being born. We are doing a lot better in terms of what it means to take care of ourselves and, and like this idea of gesturing towards care for self, another, the planet, than we ever have. The consciousness that we have about like the rest of the world and how people live in different parts of the world. 200 years ago, people didn't know what was going on at the other side of the world. And so I feel like as the way the world is dying in many, many ways, and it has to die, happy birthday, babes, to all the new things that are coming. <laughs> happy birthday to us, happy birthday to our kids. We are going to be the best ancestors because we're conscious of that stuff. And we're like, yes, we're reclaiming it. We're making it like, I'm like, I'm so happy to be alive every day. I'm like, I cannot believe I'm here, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And so there are ways to read what's happening as crisis because it is for the antiquated ways of being for the ways of being that have to die so that we can give bring new ones. We've got to give away some of these things that we've been holding on to as I move my apartment and let go of some stuff because there's an African saying, a South African saying like you, you can't get anything with your hands closed. You've got to open your hands 
then you'll be in a stance to receive. And so I feel like we really need to tap into the narrative of like arrival, like we've appeared. Hmm. I don't think we are born. I think we appear. It's like, oh, we've appeared. And now, because we were never gone, right? Even the birth, it, it, being born means it makes you think as if like you were never, that you were disappeared. No, you were always there. You just appeared this time and you're like, hey, I'm back. And so, I don't know. I just think all these questions that we can now ask on public platforms, this conversation that we can have now that we couldn't have 50 years ago. I don't feel afraid of like in a fundamental way. I mean, yes, I'm scared of like, you know, making a mistake and saying the wrong thing on the internet being canceled. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, every day I don't live with an energy of, of fear. And that's because I'm working on that. And it's wonderful to live in a world where that's possible and we can share technologies and ways to do it. And we aren't being stopped. And we're here, you know? <laughs> and this is a miracle, Dario. Yeah. We're continuing a very old tradition here of South Africans and, and Americans having conversations in this way. It's a very old tradition. The fact that we can do this talk now and I'm coming there next week to stay at your place. Hello. Like, <laughs> this is an old tradition and it's, it's wonderful that we can take some of these things from the past with us, but also really determine other futures for ourselves, which are where liberation is not just freedom. I don't just want freedom. I want true liberation. Mm-hmm. And for us mm-hmm. to sit down and be like, I have a five-hour conversation. What is liberation? <laughs> as spirits, as not in a woo-woo way, but like in a real way, like that, that mm. embodies and encompasses all these things. Um, I feel very fortunate to be alive, and and I and I and I'm not the only one. There's many of us, and. I'm glad mm-hmm. I came again this time, you know. Absolutely. Very happy. Um, well, Millie, what ways, if, if people can, what ways can they connect with you? Where can they get an opportunity to catch a screening of this film? I don't know if you have IG again, but maybe Twitter, maybe yeah, email, yeah, yeah, I do. maybe a website, maybe just a website. Well, people can click on the bottom of this button and subscribe to my YouTube. Ah! <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't have a YouTube, (laughs) but I love when the influencers do that. So I'm uh, on Instagram, um, Miss Millie B, M-I-S-S-M-I-L-L-I-B. And I'm also on Twitter, same handle. Um, People can email me at info at millisutando.com. And um, I'm not very, I don't, I'm not interested in TikTok, unfortunately. I'm I'm too old. Like, I I think I, you know, it's the young people's thing and there's nothing in me that says I want to go there, but I enjoy seeing them sometimes. Um, And right now we are um, doing the festival run of the film. So uh, I'll be in New York on the 6th and 7th of April. Um, We have a screening at the Museum of Modern Art um, Mm -hmm. in a festival called... um, True, um, not true, false, sorry, new directors, new films. That's not a festival, it's more like a, a program that MoMA has. And so there'll be a screening on the 6th of April there at the Walter Reed Theatre at the Lincoln Centre, and on the 7th of April at MoMA. And then, um, 
Sorry, when is this coming out? Because some of these are not allowed to announce. Uh, yeah, no, we this will be coming out at the end of May, but we will we will put a link okay, in good. the show notes to your to your site and the movie site, yeah. and people can find it there. Um, Wonderful, Millie. But we're also going to other parts uh, of the country which, and and the world, which, which will be great. Ah, oh, okay, work. Um, thank you, Millie. This is incredible. Thank you so much. I love this idea of apartheid as representative of an existential lie. There is no separation between us. What are your thoughts? Head over to Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination and share with us your favorite moment on today's episode. Oh, and can I ask you a favor? Leave us a review over on Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. Okay, all right, that was two favors. Be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch this and other episodes on our new YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. Now, come close. Let me tell you a secret. There is no separation. All is consciousness. The thoughts in your head occupy the same space as that glass on the table. Simply observe them and move on. Stay curious and keep dreaming.